Okay, uh, we are going to continue on in our Address the Mess series over the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, I say this about every book I preach, but I, I mean it. This is also another one of my favorite books uh, to preach on because how applicable so many of these things are in our, in our lives today. And the Bible is always applicable, but this is very specifically applicable. Now, just to give you some background information, Paul had uh, established this Corinthian church about four to five years before he wrote this letter to them. Uh, and as a matter of fact, when he had established it, he spent 14 or 15 months uh, just kind of training them and teaching them and getting them ready to launch. Uh, now that same church had become influenced by the world to a point where it was actually becoming uh, a mess. I mean, they were compromising the Word of God uh, so that they could gain attention from man. Uh, they were becoming immoral. Uh, they were becoming self-righteous. It was just a mess that this church was turning to. And like any self-righteous people, they inevitably became judgmental. Now, how ironic is that? A church that made this big of a mess of things judges people. But this is one of the problems that they were also having. They were becoming judgmental. Uh, so because of their ungodly attitudes and the actions, uh, the ungodly actions, um, it was just becoming a real mess, and it was a disappointment to Paul, and he was trying to get it straightened out. So Paul was trying to uh, write to them and hopefully trying to accomplish one of three things or all three things, and that was to engage, encourage, and equip them to get spiritually back on track. And by engaging, I mean he wanted to engage them right where they were. Paul wanted to go to them as they were and just address the problems they were facing in that moment and try to get them back on track. And he wanted to equip them by helping them restore their faith, get that love and passion for God back and get back focused on his word. Uh, and he also wanted to encourage them to live the kind of life that draws people to Jesus because, I mean, after all, that's why they're there. So today Paul's going to be talking to the Corinthians about something that's really important. He's going to be talking to them about spiritual servanthood and stewardship. So I titled the message today, The Steward and the Master, uh, because everyone who has ever believed, I mean, is called to be a servant and a steward. Now, sadly, the Corinthians didn't take that very seriously and, and made a mess of their lives in their church. And if we're honest, there's a lot of believers who still don't take it that serious today, so this is a really important message. So, okay, that's as fast as I can catch up. I can catch up like an awesome year there. Okay, so let's jump right in. First Corinthians chapter 4. I am going to attempt to do the entire chapter. I'm going to attempt that. We'll see how that works. Verse 1 says, So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. You might want to underscore that. So in verse 1, Paul starts referring back to what he taught them in chapter 3. That was, He just keeps referring back to this time and time. So in his mind, this is very important to them. Let's look at this, First Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He says, For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I am a follower of Paul, and another says, I am a follower of, of Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of the world? After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your heart, and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seeds grow. So, now remember, this Corinthian church, and I'm going to be repeating several things throughout this message because Paul's really trying to drive these home. But the Corinthian church was filled with immature, carnal, self-righteous believers. I mean, that's what the church was filled with at that time. And they struggled with jealousy, and they loved to quarrel over foolish things. I mean, stupid things like... Who's the wisest? Who's the most spiritual? I struggle with anybody fighting with someone else about who's the most spiritual. I struggle to think either one of them is. You know what I mean? If you're going to fight about it. But they were fighting about things like that. They even argued over which spiritual leader was the wisest. So 
So much so that they started aligning themselves with the one they felt was the wisest. And then you know how two little kids say, my daddy could beat up your daddy? I mean, that's what this became. This became them saying, well, I follow Apollos, and he's way better than Paul. And they were going back and forth with that stuff. In a sense, they became like spiritual leader groupies, if you will. I mean, they were wearing the T-shirt. Uh, and Paul was very upset with that. And he knew the reason that they had all these jealousies and they had uh, all this quarreling. He knew it was because of two things, and that was that self-righteousness and pride that they developed and developed in faith. I mean, it was that pride that led them to seek the approval of men more than the approval of God. And that's really at the root of all this. And by approval, I meant the recognition and respect that, believe it or not, Greek people, I mean, craved to be looked at as wise and, and philosophical because that was the rock stars of their era, the, the wise and the philosophical. And so they craved that attention and that admiration that came with being seen as wise. Uh, and so it, I mean, the self-righteousness and pride drove them to make that even worse in their life. But... I mean, quarreling about who followed the wisest leader. Seriously, that really was foolishness to Paul. Because, you know, Paul and Apollos were like any good godly leader. They said, listen, listen. I mean, it's not us, it's God. If anything good comes out of anything we, we bring to you or we teach you or we show you, it's from God. It's not from us. It's not about us. And they keep repeating over and over in here that they are merely faithful servants. And here's the thing is, I don't know how they were trying to pit them against each other because they were teaching the same message. They were not in opposition to each other. They were actually working perfectly unified. And because they both were teaching the same message, how can you align yourself with one of them and start comparing each other? It's just, it was ridiculous. They were just following the instructions that God gave them. So to put an end to the Corinthian foolish rivalries, Paul literally address this issue. One of the things I love about Paul's writing is that he doesn't skirt around the issue. Okay, you ever talk to the person that you know what they're trying to tell you but it's taken them forever to tell you? Yeah, that's not Paul. Paul comes straight to the point and he wanted to address this and in doing so he, he kept making one thing very plain. Once again, he wanted them to realize that Apollos and himself knew that they were, su- they were servants and stewards of God. Now I'm going to repeat this and explain this several times but there's a reason. Uh, but a steward is a servant who has been put in charge of something by their master. Now, if you had to compare it to something today, they'd be considered like a foreman or a supervisor uh, or a manager. That's kind of what they'd be compared to. Now, a servant was a person who performs duties for somebody else, um, usually their master. And that would be considered uh, in our time like an employee or contract of labor. And here's the thing. Notice what Paul said that he and Apollos were put in charge of. Okay, look at this, First Corinthians 4.1 again. He said, who have been put in charge of explaining God's what? God's mystery. Okay, now this word's a little deceiving in the English, okay? Uh, and because really what he was saying here was that by explaining God's you know, mysteries was that he was uh, teaching and training them in the truth of the word of God. That's basically what he was saying. Because the word mysteries comes from the Greek word mysterion. And mysterion literally means, listen to this definition, uh, content which has not been known before, not unknowable, has not been known before, but which has been revealed to an in-group or restricted constituency. So a mystery isn't something that can't be known, it's just something you don't know yet. Something that hasn't been revealed to you as of yet. That's what a mystery is. And in this case, the mystery they were referring to was God's Word. See, God revealed these, these words to the apostles and his servants first. 
He was the one that made the mystery known to the apostles, known to the disciples. And their job was to make that same mystery, that same teaching that God had brought to them first, it was their job to take that to the people. That was their job. And Paul and Apollos knew in doing that, they didn't do anything but do what God told them to do. So it didn't warrant them having groupies, and they didn't want the groupies. They didn't like it. I'll tell you what, when you're in leadership and you start liking the groupies, get out of leadership because it will destroy you. Neither one of these guys had that. They were just trying to teach what God had taught them and teach them to love God and have allegiance to God. Now, in verses 1 through 3, if I'm moving too fast, let me know. I'm going to try to get through this chapter. I'm not saying I'll slow down, but you can let me know. But anyway, in verses 1 through 3, it starts becoming really obvious that there's some more serious problems he needs to address. Let's see if you can pick this up. 1 Corinthians 4, 2. It says, Now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. So he starts chapter 4 off by saying, once again, he's doing this comparison between a secular steward and a, and a spiritual steward. Right? And I'm going to give you this definition again. A steward is a servant who has been put in charge of something by their master. And that's why he you know, intentionally used the words that they were put in charge and had to manage, right, what he said in verse 1 and 2. So a steward is basically a manager of whatever is assigned to them by whoever their master is. That's what it is. So then Paul reminded them that stewards should be faithful. Now at that time, things were different. I mean, you didn't sit at home and, and expect the government to take care of you back then. It, it was totally different. If you sat at home and did nothing, you starved to death. Okay, that's how it worked at that time. So if you were a steward, like for instance, a lot of times they would have stewards that were hired over their homestead. If you were a steward and didn't do your job, you would lose your position. At the very least, you would lose your position. All right? A lot of times it would end up ending up in legal trouble, either uh, with that, that master that you served or with the local authorities, because that was a contract was taken very seriously, and they were supposed to be uh, accomplishing this task that was given to them, right? And so what Paul was doing was saying, listen, you know, just like when you are a steward, because a lot of these people probably work for other people. He was saying, just like you're a steward and you've got to do your job or you're not going to succeed, so, so also stewards of God have to do what God told them to do if we want to succeed. Right? But it's obvious that, I mean, something's going on here. Why would he even defend himself like that? Now, some theologians believe that 3 through 5 proved that Paul had some opposition in the Corinthian church. I mean, some theologians even say there were people who hated him in that church. And that they were judging him and trying to start rumors about him. Imagine how weird that would be, somebody trying to start rumors about spiritual leaders. Wouldn't that be weird? But it was happening, and so he addressed it. And I totally agree with the theologians for once. I mean, I agree with them. I think this absolutely is proof that something's going on. In verses 3 through 5, we'll see that more. Uh, it sounds like someone's unjustly judging him. Look at verse 3. It says, As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. Have you ever known that person who genuinely doesn't care what people think about him? Raise your hand if you've ever met that person. Genuinely. Like four people. That's shocking even that many, but... When you meet someone like that, I almost envy it. I almost envy the person that just can dismiss what anybody thinks about him. Just blow it off, not give it a second thought. I mean, I almost, I almost envy those people. Imagine being so confident 
that you don't even worry what anybody thinks except God. Being that confident in God. I, I mean, I, I envy those people because I'm not, not always that way. Now, I'm not talking about those people who don't care what everyone thinks, who are like hermits who belligerently dismiss everyone in society. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person, the Christian, who just loves God, and when people say something about him, they're like, eh. You know what I mean? Listen, if you're going to be in leadership, you better find a way to get that way because they are going to talk about you. Trust me. Uh, there's probably going to be people talk about me as they leave today. I'm just saying. So that person who didn't care and was just focused on pleasing God, that was Paul. That was the Apostle Paul, and I have some theories on that. Because as soon as he believed, he became this confident uh, servant of God who was so focused on, on serving and pleasing God that he was able to push out the voices that everyone else was throwing at him. But before he converted, remember, he was the up-and-comer in the, in the Jewish faith at that time. He was the up-and-comer, right? And so he probably spent a lot of time trying to please the Jewish leaders so that he could move up, you know, in the ranks. He probably spent a ton of time trying to do the things they told him to do and do them the way they told him to do them, hopefully, you know, hoping that they're going to be impressed with him. But once he believed, those same leaders who spent so much time trying to impress just completely wrote him off and turned on him, just immediately turned on him. And that's probably why he learned to not care what people thought. Because he's like, you know what, I cared at one time. I poured everything I had into the Sanhedrin, into these these Jewish councils and Jewish leaders just hoping to get some respect from them. And the moment I disagree with them, they turn on me and are hoping I get killed and even try to arrange my death. So he's, he just finds out the hard way that, the, you know, when you get the approval of man, it is fleeting at best. Have you ever noticed that? When you're doing what people want you to do, they will love you. But a real friend is someone who will love you even when you don't do what they're doing and or don't approve of what they're doing but can still find a way to love you. That's a real friend, right? But I think Paul just learns here that, hey, if I try to please everybody, I'm going to fail, and the people I'm putting all my trust in, they will betray me. So the most important thing I can do is just worry about what God thinks about me. Now notice in verse 5, Paul clarified uh, who a good steward or servant should try to please. Look at this, verse 5. It says, uh, so don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time. That's important. Before the Lord returns, for He will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Does that spook anybody when you hear that? And maybe you're one of those people that says, "I have nothing to hide. God knows everything I do is perfect." Maybe that's you. That is, that, that's not me. You know what I mean? And I don't know. This this sounds stupid, but I'm going to let you into the dark, dangerous regions of my mind. But sometimes when I get mad in traffic, that I mean, it happens every once in a while. I think after I say something I really regret, I wonder if he's going to throw that one back at me. You know what I mean? I can just see standing before God and he's going, really, Chris, everybody was idiots on the road but you. Right? I say, see, God gets it. No, I'm just kidding. It just makes me wonder about that. You know what I mean? But anyway, I'll, I'll let you out of those dark recesses in my mind now. It says, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. So Paul clarified that the only one who can judge a servant or a steward is their master, right? So by trying to judge Paul, by making judgments about Paul, they were trying to take the place of his master. They were trying to have mastery over him by judging him. You know what I mean? And who were they to judge him? And this is what Paul's saying. Who are you 
to judge me. Look at the mess you've made of your spiritual life and the mess you're making of the church because you're so worried about pleasing man. What gives you the right to judge me? You know, something that came to my mind is when we allow others' judgment and opinions of us to affect us, we are in turn handing them mastery over us. Did you know that? When you worry about what other people think to the point that it's changing you, then basically you are submitting to them as your master. And that never, ever, ever ends well. It just doesn't end well. You know, so the best way to live is like Paul. Just ignore the unjust arguments. If they're saying something about you that isn't true, let it go. You know what I mean? I've had people ask me, did you hear what they said about you? Yeah. Are you going to contact them? No. Why? Because innocent people don't defend themselves. You know what I mean? I'm not going to get in some, you know, ridiculous match with somebody on social media or, or play phone tag with somebody or text tag with somebody over something they said. If it's not right, it can't hurt me, so why do I even worry about it? You know, this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to say here. You know, don't let people have mastery over you. It's amazing to me, I mean, amazing to me how many people give away the mastery of their life to somebody. It just blows me away. That's another sermon. We'll get on that later. But I thought it was kind of ironic that Paul said, I don't even trust my own judgment at this point. Right? Now, what did he mean by that? What he was saying is, like, you know, he was just like every other human. We have this finite snapshot of what's going on in the big picture of the world. We don't see beginning, middle, and end. We get this finite snapshot. Have you ever thought you were right, would have bet everything you had you were right, and found out you were wrong? Raise your hand if that's happened to you. Say, the only people that don't raise their hand are probably not married. But um, I'm just saying. Uh, I don't know how I said Jenny might be listening online. Anyway, but have you ever really believed with all your heart, were willing to defend, I am right in this one. I'm not backing down. I'm right. And then you find out you were wrong because you only had information available to you in that instance. But see, God sees past, present, and future all at one time. So the things we may think we're doing for the right motives, who knows whether we really are or not. So only God can see our motives and intentions. And only God can judge them, and He will. That's what Paul was trying to say. Now that being said, I want to cover something, because every time you talk about judgment, people get it out of context and, and, and kind of twist the message. Some people love to quote the passage where it says judgment. Okay, let me read this to you. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. This is Jesus. He says, Do not what? Judge others, and you will what? Not be judged. Okay, now that's what everybody loves to quote. Verse, uh, verse 2. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Now, people mistakenly use this passage as protection from all accountability. I mean, they always say, well, the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. It, it, it really doesn't say that. It says it, but it's not the context of it. Right? That's a serious mistake and a, and a misrepresentation of the context of these verses. Right? What he meant was, Jesus was trying to say, no one has the right to judge unfairly or without enough information, and no one has the right to judge hypocritically. I mean, the Corinthians are pretty much being hypocrites. They're trying to judge how Paul's living his life. With the mess they made of that church, they were trying to judge his life. But unjust judgments are usually based on biases or, or religion or tradition or your prejudices. That's usually where the unjust judgment comes from. And true, I mean, we cannot judge people's salvation. That is one of my 
Oh my gosh, that's a pet peeve to me. I don't know if you've ever heard people say this, and they say, well, a Christian wouldn't do that. And I'm like, please show me that in the Bible. Please show me that. What I see in the Bible is if any man says he has no sin, he lies and the truth not in it. But if any man will confess his sin, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. That was written in 1 John to believers. If any of you think that you don't sin, you're a liar is basically what it's saying. Right? So I can't stand it when people go, well, I don't know. I think they just need a good dose of salvation. I just want to go, I think you need a good dose of studying the Word for a second or two. You know, because that we are not, we can't judge anybody's salvation because we don't know where they're at in their life. They might be struggling with something very difficult. And I've had people say, well, if I was in their shape, I wouldn't do that. Watch what you say. Watch what you say. I've seen people lose a loved one and become bitter and angry for a while, and they don't behave like a believer because they're struggling. And that's the time when other believers need to come around them and encourage them and uplift them and try to restore them. It's not the time that we get in our little circles and talk about it. We have no right to judge someone's salvation. That's one thing we don't have a right to judge. We can't judge someone's intent. Why? Because you don't know it. You don't know their intent. You don't have the right to judge anybody's heart because only God sees the heart and can judge that. However, we can make a righteous judgment. The Bible talks about a righteous judgment. Okay? And a righteous judgment is based on God's Word. Look at John 7, 24. It says, Do not judge according to what? Appearance. Okay? Because we can't know. Only God can know beyond the appearance. But judge with what? Righteous judgment. Now, did he just say judge? He said, look at this, but what? But judge. Well, I thought just a little bit ago you said you're not allowed to judge. That's what people always quote to you, right? Because they use that out of context. They say, oh, you can't judge. Well, I mean, evidently there is a type of judgment that he allows. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. And later this book, Paul's going to remind us that believers someday will actually not only judge the world, they'll judge the angels. Okay, look at this, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. It says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge what? The world. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Think about this. Do you? I love this. It says, Do you not know that we will judge what? Angels, how much more matters of this life? Okay, so it sounds like there's a contradiction here, but there's really not. Right? So a righteous judgment is judging according to God's word, not and according to his standard, not your standard. It can't be about your standard. And a true righteous judgment is made with the hope of restoration, not being condescending, not trying to one up them or not trying to put them down so you can lift yourself up. A true righteous judgment involves a desire to see some re- someone restored. Look at this. Galatians 6.1 talks about this, and I'll stop because we can't preach on this very long. Uh, but it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of what? Of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You know what he was saying there? When you see someone that's out of the will of God, Make sure you go to them in a loving fashion with the hope of restoring them. And be careful what you say about them because you never know when that will be you. Be careful. Okay, now let's move on. Starting in verse 6. It starts talking to the arrogant. 
says, Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I have quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of one another. He's saying, if you really knew the scriptures, you wouldn't be trying to see who is better, Apollos or me. You realize it was all God. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 7. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? You think you are already uh, you think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. I love that. I'll explain that in a minute. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Oh, I can't wait to explain that. But anyway, I love how Paul calls out the arrogance of the Corinthians who are judging people unjustly. He just calls them out, right? And he reminded them that they had no right to feel superior to anybody. They had no right to feel superior to anyone else because anything they had that might make them feel superior, whether it be wealth or, or position or whether it would be you know, the, a power they had been given, it was all made possible by God. So they had nothing to be arrogant about. That's what he was saying. Especially when they used their unjust judgments to cause strife and discord, which he brought up again. He said, especially, you know, when you're like trying to pit leader against leader to make yourself look good is basically what he was trying to say here. I love how he reminds them that all that self-righteousness that was pulling them away was just foolishness. They developed this false sense of superiority when in all actuality they were spiritual pygmies. And they were trying to judge as if they were these spiritual giants. And he just calls them out. And Paul even said they acted as if they were already reigning in the kingdom, talking about the millennial kingdom. Right? Because they acted like they had it all spiritually together. They acted like they were already rich and in and, and the spirit and rich financially and had everything and needed no one because they were so self-sufficient and righteous. Then Paul mocked them and he says, you know what, basically, I, here's how I interpret what he was saying. I wish you were reigning because we would be also, because if you're good enough to reign in the kingdom, everyone is. That's basically what Paul was saying to him because reigning in the kingdom is, is a, uh, a gift given to the faithful, you know, when they're judged before the millennial kingdom. And he's saying, if with all the train wreck you've made here, you get to reign, well, then all of us should be good. We should all be able to reign. Now, in verses 9 through 13, Paul uh, gives the Corinthians just a, a glimpse of the sacrifice leaders make. This section is kind of, I could have spent a lot of time on this section. Starting in verse 9, it says, Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display. Like what? Like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade condemned to what? So he says, I, sometimes I feel like God has put us on display like a criminal who's walking the green mile. That's basically what he's saying here. Right? And, I mean, that's basically exactly what he's saying. He says, we have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you uh, claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. Even now, we go hungry and thirsty. We don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us, yet we are threatened like the world's garbage. I love that. Or sorry, we are treated like the world's garbage. Like everybody's trash right up to the present moment. Now, Paul brought this up, and this is something a lot of people don't think about. 
And when I talk to young men who are entering the ministry, I remind them of this. Because sometimes they get the mindset that when you're going to spiritual leadership that everybody's going to love you, everybody's going to respect you, everybody's going to blindly follow you, and you will be lifted up on a pedestal. Yeah, not true. Okay, not true. And a lot of people don't think about that. But here's the deal. Spiritual leaders have a huge target on their back. I was warned about that when I got into ministry. But, you know, I was, you know, 23 and knew everything. So I thought, ah, they probably have, you know, a target on their back because they're not as smart as me. You know what I mean? Not the case. Okay? It is a fact. You have a target on your back. People always judge them unfairly. They gossip about them. They gossip about them. They persecute them. I mean, even little things. I remember when I was working in the factories when we just started the church and they didn't have the money to put me in full time. So I was working there and here. And people would say things, you know, just little things to make stabs at me. You know, they'd say things like, hey, I, I, I'm hurt. You want to heal me there, preacher? they just constantly making little stabs or they call me Jimmy Swagger, which, ooh. yeah, that looks good. But, yeah, I mean, this is part of the, and I always think to myself, you know, I don't have it as bad as Paul did. I, I, I can't let that get to me. But ironically, the people will judge leaders by a standard they don't live by themselves. You ever notice that? They'll judge leaders by a standard they don't live by themselves. And I totally get what Paul was talking about when he discussed the target on spiritual leaders' back. I'm going to give you some of my experience. Okay? People have gotten mad at me for trying to reach people for Jesus that they don't like. I wish that were a joke. Literally, someone had, had come to Christ, they started attending church, and someone told me, I'm not going to go to church with And I said, what? Well, so-and-so's coming there, and I can't stand them. Like I'm supposed to say, oh, well, then I'll take them on. I mean, if you don't like them, how about you let me win them to Jesus? How about you let me try to lead them to Jesus? Maybe Jesus will make them somebody different. You know, but I literally had a lady tell me one time, I can't stand that girl. I'm like, she's like 10 years older than me. How do you even know her? I just can't stand her. She goes there, I'm not going. I'm like, well, if you need help find another church, let me know. Because I'm sorry I'm not going to back away from winning somebody to Christ because you have some petty difference with them and it's unbelievable. I've had people get mad at me for trying to reach people they don't like. I've had people uh, <laughs> this is terrible. I've had to deal with people even leaders who just don't want to be led by anybody. I've had to deal with that. You know what I mean? And something that should be easy isn't. Like hey let's all get together and make a decision that helps the church and it turns out being a squabble you know and you're going you know, we're trying to think about the church here, not ourselves. I see that all the time. I'm not saying with my current leadership. Or am I? No. Anyway. I'm constantly dealing with people who forget leaders work for God. They don't become Him. Let me explain that. I can't tell you how many people have been mad at me for not showing up at something I didn't know about. They're like, why weren't you there when my grandma had surgery? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see my planner. Did you contact me? No. Oh, you must have contacted me, and maybe I missed your text. No. Who did you contact? Well, I put it on Facebook. Oh, well, then it should be feared in all of our hearts. You know, you put it on Facebook. And I said, why didn't you call me? Well, I put it on Facebook. Yeah, the same phone you used to put it on Facebook has my number in it. You can call me or text me. I had someone get mad at me one time and leave the church. Leave the church because they had an abscess tooth pulled and I didn't show up before that surgery. I went, I thought it was a joke at first, and I laughed, which I probably shouldn't have. 
because I couldn't imagine someone really getting mad at me over an abscess tooth. And I looked at her, and I, I, I'm still thinking it was funny, and it was a joke. I looked at her, and I said, well, it looks like you survived it by the, you know, the hair of your chin. Yeah, they didn't think that was as funny as I did. They left the church. You know, people got to realize something. We serve God. We are not Him. We're not going to be walking down the street and going, Heaven's going to have surgery tomorrow. I feel it. See if I can, oh yeah, I feel it. It's at Parkview at 2 o'clock in room 1304. That's where i got to be tomorrow. Let me levitate and float with the Spirit. You know what I mean? That is not how it works. I, heaven forbid, when you need us, you don't put your big boy or big girl pants on and, I don't know. Because we'd love to be there. But I wish I had a dollar for every time someone was mad at me for not attending something I didn't know they wanted me to attend. Don't get me started. That could be a long list. Right? I've had Christian people get mad at me over softball. In a game, playing someone. Another believer. Thinking, we're all here to win people to Jesus. You know, that's why we're coaching. And they won't even shake my hand at the end. I'm like, it's a game. At the end of the day, it's a game. Get mad at me. You're a preacher. You should know better. Know better than what? To beat you? I'm sorry. Get better. You know? Anyway, I'm going to go on a tirade. But... <laughs> But what I've experienced, again, just pales in comparison to what the Apostle Paul had to say. I mean, it pales in comparison. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. He says, I am not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. Underscore warn if you're following on your Bible. For even if you had 10,000 others teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. Now, I know the spiritual father is not capitalized, so it's not talking about deity. It's talking about himself. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So Paul closes out chapter 4 by lovingly reminding and warning his readers about their conduct. Okay, and the word he used for warn here is from the Greek word nuthateo, and it means admonish like a parent admonishes a child for their own good. So he was saying warning, he wasn't saying, you know, I'm warning you. That's not what he was saying. Well, although that's how my dad warned me. But that's not what he was saying. He was saying, I'm warning you, like he would tell a kid, listen, I'm telling you, if you try to jump on that ramp, it's going to collapse. Don't do it. You know, that's the warning of a parent who just cares. You know what I mean? That's the kind of warning he was giving them. And he reminded them that, listen, I'm the one that led you to Jesus through the gospel. I'm invested in you. And as such, I feel this paternal obligation and concern and love for you. So I'm going to warn you about things that you need to avoid that are yet coming in the future. Then he asked him to do something that may sound strange, but it really wasn't. Look at this, verse 16 through 20. He says, so I urge you to what? Imitate me. When you read that, does anybody think, well, that's tough. Anybody think that when they first read it? I'll explain that. Verse 17, that's why I have sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. So you've got to remember, this isn't Paul being arrogant. Okay, Paul viewed his life as being totally in submission to God and God's word and God's authority. And he sent Timothy to attest to that fact. He said, listen, I've, I've been with him through these journeys. He's, he's, he's legit. He's seriously concerned about seeing the will of God. Paul wasn't saying, be like me, I'm awesome. That's not what he was saying. Paul was saying, submit and trust God like I do, and he'll use you just as much as he uses you. That's what he meant by, you know, imitate me. Right, and finally... Uh, Paul warned them to stop acting arrogant you know, like they had no accountability. Look at verses 18 to 20. It says, Some of you have become arrogant, thinking I will not visit you again. 
but I will come and see if the Lord lets me. And then I'll find out whether uh, these arrogant people just just give pretentious speeches, uh, pretentious speeches, or whether they are really whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk; it is living by God's power. Which do you choose? Should I come with a rod to punish you, or should I come with love uh, and a gentle spirit? Uh, I, this is kind of funny in a way. He's basically saying. Evidently, there was leaders there who thought, okay, Paul's not coming back. So somebody has to be the big guy. It might as well be me. So some people were stepping up and, and thinking they had no accountability to Paul anymore and thinking they could run the show and were running it into the ground. And Paul said, listen, I'm going to return. You think I'm not coming back and you have no accountability, but I am going to return. Because like any good father, I want to make sure my children are growing. I want to make sure they're being healthy. I'm going to come back and see you. But you got to decide what you want that visit to look like. And I think this is like so gangster the way he says it. He's like, when I come back, I can either come like a loving father who you know approaches you and, and uplifts you and encourages you, or I can come like the father bringing the paddle to let you have it because you deserve it. That's up to you. And I, I love that because sometimes I think this is how God speaks to us. You know what I mean? When things are going wrong in our life and we go, where are you at, God? I don't understand. Why is this happening to me? A lot of times I can just hear God saying, listen, you had a choice. You could have done things my way and you wouldn't be here. If you could have done things my way, I would be uplifting and blessing you right now. But since you chose to do it your way, there's only one thing I can do, and that's discipline you. You know what I mean? Anybody ever hear their parents say, this hurts me more than it does you. That's a lie. I just brought that up. I'm just going to let you know. Unless your dad didn't think like mine, because it was impossible that it hurt him more than it hurt me. But one thing he would also say is, why do you have to force my hand? Why can't you just do what we ask? And back then I thought, control freak. But <laughs> as you grow, you realize they ask you to do things because they love you. And the things they ask you to do, most parents anyway, are supposed to enhance your life and make you a better person. So when they say, why do you make these choices? I would love to bless you and brag on you, but instead you leave me with no choice but to this thing. This is what Paul was trying to tell him as he closed out chapter 4. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you where the things about your head. This is your first time. We always like to give an invitation. Briefly. Listen, we don't pretend to know anyone's heart, but while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, or you just want prayer, I'm not going to chase you down or email you or try to find you. I'm just going to pray for you. If you'd like to make eye contact, you put your head right back down. Bless those people, and I'm going to pray for you. I always do. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But as believers, there's one overriding message I see in these verses today, and that is all of us are servants. And all of us are given stewardship to that. But sometimes I think we need to evaluate where that falls in priority in our life. You know, we're, we're in a world right now where you can't tell Christians from the world anymore. We need to be the ones that love. We need to be the ones that stand in the gap. And I feel like we're there. I want to pray for us all. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all the love and mercy and kindness and grace that you've shown me. Each one of us doesn't deserve the love that you placed on that cross. But I am so thankful that you love this creation enough, that you made a way for us to have eternal life free of Christ, that we could just believe in the sacrifice Jesus made for us on that cross. His death, burial, and resurrection paid a debt we could never pay. 
And we're so thankful that all we have to do to have that applied to our lives is believe. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to come up with something to trade. We don't have to prove ourselves. We just have to believe. And that's an amazing gift of grace. And we thank you for that. And I pray if, if someone here doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, remove it and let them embrace that gift. But God, for those of us who are believers, it, it's so easy to just be a spectator. To sit back and wait for someone else to be the spiritual leader. But God, we know that there are people that we are placed here to reach. And we're failing. Give us a passion to be good stewards and servants once again. I believe the days are drawing close, Lord, and we need believers who are willing to reach out and love people. Let us be those believers. Put a fire in us to serve you again. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. And we ask you to go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. If you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the faith and glory for you. We ask you to see you